Well, folks, it's becoming increasingly clear as, um, as the dust settles on the pandemic, kids are going back to school, people are getting vaccinated. It's becoming clear what, what our society is going to look like on the back of this. I guess we don't fully know until we're there, but, but the sociologists and psychologists and people who understand these things better than uh, many of us do are all saying that one thing is, is going to be consistent, particularly in the Western world. They would say that we're on the edge of a mental health crisis. And it, it might not maybe feel like it because all of us are, are desperate to get out and be amongst people. And maybe, maybe you don't feel like that, but it seems like the whole population just wants to be back to normal in that sense. But, but being isolated for 12 months, even longer in some cases, has done interesting things to to our minds, to our emotions, and it is going to be for all of us a, a strange uh, reality of just getting back to being with people. And for a lot of people, it's going to be a real struggle. Uh, particularly for our young ones, you think just the experience that they're growing up in, even pre-pandemic, psychologists and people who, who um, are professionals in education would say that this generation, or Generation Z as they're called, so that's anyone who's born, anyone who's younger than 18, they would say that the, the, the story of Generation Z is one of, of fear. They are born into a society where they are searching for safety. So you think pre-pandemic, and I think we've almost forgotten about this, but we live in a world of, of terror. Like our, our terror scale or whatever it is that the government has, is constantly sitting up here somewhere. And so even before we had a pandemic, there's a sense in which our world is a, is, a, is a scary place to live. And now you place a global pandemic on the back of that. It is increasingly becoming a, a terrifying place to live, particularly for our young ones. You think of the world that they live in with social media and having to conform to, to cultural stereotypes of looking a certain way or speaking a certain way of or taking interest in certain things. And if you don't, then, then you're not one of us. You're, you're, not, you're not a true human. It is, a, it is a, a culture and a society of fear. The craving for this generation, and if we're honest, the craving for all of us, is a need, a desperate need for security. A desperate need for safety. We all feel that in a sense. We want to be safe. We want to be secure. I'm just not just talking about physically. I'm talking about just the whole of our person needs to feel secure. We are eternal beings. And it's, so it's not even security just in this life. Like it's not good enough just to have a good pension waiting for you or a, or a, a house that you own. That is not good enough. We will live beyond that. Like those things will just feel like a blink of an eye in a billion years from now. We need security now and we need security for all eternity. And all of us are wired in a way that we are searching for that. And that is not a bad thing. And you'll know that when you find it, when you find a sense of security, when you find a sense of safety, there is a, there is a feeling of joy associated with that. In fact, safety and security are intrinsically woven together. I just think of some of the experiences you might have had as a child. And I appreciate you might kind of land in one or two places here, but my experience as a child was, was I just think back at the times I spent with my father. 
uh, someone who I, who I associated with a place of safety. Like, like if there was a problem, I would go to my dad and he would, he would keep me secure. He would make me feel safe. I felt safe in his presence. And I remember the times when my dad being joyful times. Because I felt safe with him, I, I felt comfortable, I could be myself. I didn't have to throw up a facade with my dad and pretend that I'm someone who I'm not. I feel like I can be who I am with him. I feel safe and so I feel joy. I feel happiness. Our safety and our joy are intrinsically woven together. That is just a reality for all of us. It's also a reality that the word of God speaks into got your Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're on page 981. You'll need a Bible this morning just to track along with us if you haven't got one. Uh, Johnny will get you on, just pop your hand up and he will get one too. Working our way through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, the first church in modern day Europe, in, in Greece. The church is planted, it's planted small, but it grows and it's mature. And Paul is talking about this journey of growth that every Christian is brought onto. And he comes to chapter 3 and he says this. Finally, my brothers, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless but whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Safety and joy. That's what Paul says. He, he starts this, this chapter with rejoice in the Lord. We've seen that kind of constant refrain, haven't we? Rejoice, have joy. And he associates joy with something that is safe. He says he's writing to them the same things. What, what is he talking about there? Well, basically, he's saying, I'm just going to carry on talking about what I've already been talking about. And what's he been talking about? The gospel of Jesus. Jesus, Paul has been presented to the Philippians Christ, who is the gospel. And he's been showing them their need to grow up into Christ. He's been showing them the gospel. He's been showing them that, that if you want to stand before God, you need to know Jesus. Like all of us naturally come into this world unrighteous, unable to be in the presence of God. But the truth of the gospel, a relationship with Jesus 
clothes us in the righteousness of Christ so that we are able to be in the presence of God. That is the goal. The goal is not comfort on this earth. The goal is not release from sufferings on this earth. The goal is Jesus and eternity with Jesus. And we all have no way of being there if we think we can get there in our own strength. It's all about Jesus. We need his righteousness. Our righteousness is not good enough. And so when Paul talks about, I'm writing to you the same things, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus. And let's just kind of just step aside for a minute. The gospel is not just for people who aren't Christians. Remember who Paul is writing to back in verse 1 of chapter 1? Who does he say? To the saints in Philippi. This letter is predominantly to those who are Christians. And Paul is saying, I'm going to write to you and tell you the gospel again. I'm going to tell you Christ again because we need it again. Like, please, Christian, this morning, don't fall into the trap of thinking the gospel is that thing that I need on the day that I'm saved. And then I can just park it and put it on a shelf and never need it again. That is not true. Paul says we need the gospel over and over. I'm going to tell you the same things because we need the same things. Day after day, we need Jesus. Day after day, we need the gospel. Paul goes on to say these same things. The gospel, Jesus... Is this safe for you? It's safe for you. The gospel is a place of safety. He's encouraging them to come into a place of safety. Now, now remember where Paul is writing from. Where is he? Prison. Like, hands up, if, if you're looking for a place of security and safety, is prison top of your list? No, of course it's not. And he's talked about all the different sufferings that he's experienced. And then last week we saw Epaphroditus, his path. Is Epaphroditus kind of, in a worldly sense, a picture of safety? No. Like he almost died trying to get to Paul. Paul is certain that with the gospel, we can associate safety. See, safety is not a product of how distant we are from danger. It is a product of how close we are to Christ. That's what's true for Paul. It doesn't matter whether he's close to death. It doesn't matter whether he's in chains. It doesn't matter whether he's getting flogged. It doesn't matter whether he's getting abused. If he is close to Jesus, then it's okay. I am safe. I am secure. For Paul, and in this part of the letter that we're in here, the message is this to the Philippians. Get close to Jesus. If you want safety, if you want security, Get close to Jesus. For Paul, knowing Jesus and specifically knowing Jesus as Lord, which means that he rules and reigns over every part of your life. Knowing Jesus as Lord is the safest place to be, both now and into eternity. But not everyone agrees with it. See in verse 2, he talks about these people called the dogs. Now, even in today's society, if someone calls you a dog, that's not a compliment, honestly. And back then, it was even less of a compliment. Like, hands up if you've got a dog here. I know there's some dog lovers here, Alan and Heather. Wow, you guys, I think, are the only people who have dogs. Glad we've, we brought Alan and Heather just for the sake of an illustration this morning. Thanks for coming. If you've got a dog or if you like dogs, that is a wonderful thing because dogs are, are nice creatures. You can cuddle up to dogs, most dogs. You can kind of cuddle up to them. You can pet them. They're friendly. They're domesticated. In the first century, none of that was true. Like, there was no such thing as a dog that you could pet. 
Like dogs back then were vicious. They carried disease. Like you would keep away from them if you could. And so when Paul talks about the dogs here, he's not talking about nice people. He's talking particularly about a group called the Judaizers. And these were, were Jews who were really working hard to bring Christians out of the faith and bring them to, to the true faith. And they said, if you really want to, want to be in a relationship with God, you need to get circumcised. You need to follow all of the law. You need, to, you need to come to all the religious rituals that we do. That's what the true faith looks like. They were wrong. But that's what they said. They had this kind of gospel. They would believe in Jesus, but it was a Jesus plus gospel. You can believe in Jesus, but you've got to do this as well. And, and then you've got to do this. And if you really want to have a relationship with God, here's this list of things that you need to do. And what does Paul call them? Dogs. He doesn't think much of them. Paul does not have time for anyone who adds to the gospel. He does not have time for people who say, yes, Jesus, but you also need this. He warns the Philippians against them. Three times. He says, look out for them. Look out for these dogs. Look out for evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Now in the first century, again, pagan religion and pagan rituals would, would often involve this kind of mutilation of the flesh, cutting of yourself, or even chopping parts of your body off as, as a way of worshipping your God. And these Judaizers would go around and say, if you want to know God, you need to be circumcised. Paul is associating their practice with pagan idolatry. He says that's got nothing to do with God. That's got nothing to do with a relationship with God. Like, like if they're trying to bring you into relationship with God, with all of these lists of things to do, stay way away from them. Look out for them. And it's not that these Judaizers thought that that you didn't need to be righteous. Like Paul would agree with them. You need a sense of righteousness. Both Christians and the Judaizers would agree that, that we do need to be right before God. But they differed greatly on how it is that we get that righteousness. The Judaizers said that our righteousness before God was all dependent on our efforts, on our confidence before God. Whereas Jesus would say our righteousness, well, it comes through Christ. You want to be righteous, it doesn't matter what's going on on the outside. What matters is your relationship with God, which comes through Christ Jesus. And folks, this matters. Our righteousness matters. It's not like Paul is saying, well, just forget about it. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter whether you're righteous or not. It doesn't matter how you live. He's saying it does matter. But it's where your righteousness comes from that matters. And can I just say, again, as a little sidestep, like we look at the Judaizers and we think, yeah, they are dogs for doing that. But, but in so many ways, we act like the dogs. We act in so many ways like Jesus plus gospel people. We do. Like we will say and we will say, yeah, it is, it is Jesus alone. It is by grace alone that we are saved. But then we feel the weight of, of having to come to church to please God. Or having to read our Bibles to be right with God. Or having to give our money to the church. Otherwise God won't be happy. That is rubbish, folks. If you are a Christian, there is no more love that God can give to you. He doesn't delight in you anymore because you give your money to church. He doesn't delight in you anymore because you're here this morning. There is no such thing as a Jesus plus gospel. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that saves you. And we need to believe that. And when we don't, we fall into the trap of being like the Judaizers. Just like them, 
we're like the dogs. Jesus and Jesus alone is what brings us right before God. Paul says, look out for these people. And Paul knows, because he used to live like that. Paul spent half his life thinking that to get right with God, to be in a good relationship with God, meant that he had to live rightly. That he had to work for his own righteousness. And folks, he was, he was the best at it. Like if there was a LinkedIn page for people with, with like, I don't know, whatever profession Paul had for church planters back in the day who, who, were, who were kind of based on a, on a work righteousness, like his LinkedIn page would be getting all the clicks. Like he was a phenomenal righteous person. His righteousness was exemplary. Like look down at me again, verse four to six, and listen to what he says. Talking about confidence in the flesh, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Like Paul was righteous in the eyes of his culture. He was a picture of righteousness in his culture. And he gives us six examples to show how righteous he was, how superior his righteousness was. Verse 5, he says he was superior in, in his religiosity. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Like that, if you're a Jew of Jews, you get circumcised on the eighth day. It wasn't that Paul, Paul was kind of brought in at a later date and converted to Judaism. No, he has always been a Jew and, and he can show you on his birth certificate that he is a Jew of Jews. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He is the epitome of someone who is religiously righteous. He says, genetically I'm superior. I'm of the people of Israel. Like my descendants. You tell me who your great, 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 great granddad is. Mine was Abraham. That's what he's saying. Like if you want to say you're a Jew, I'm more of a Jew than you are. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin as well. Now the tribe of Benjamin, they were known for being faithful to the line of David. If you wanted to be in a tribe, you wanted to be in the tribe of Benjamin. And it was in the land of the tribe of Benjamin that the holy city was built. He says, I'm genetically superior. Culturally, I'm superior. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He writes this letter in Greek, but he is fluent in Hebrew. Educationally, he's superior. He says he's a, a Pharisee. And Pharisees back then, they were the religious elite when it came to education. They were educated in the scriptures more than anyone else. And Paul says, that is me. I know God's law more than anyone. And then devotionally, devotionally he's superior to anyone else. He already says in verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now we look at this and we think, yeah, it's not a good thing. But in his culture, they loved him for it. In Acts 8 and 9, you kind of hear of Paul going in and dragging Christians out of their homes. And he was responsible for, for leading them to death. He was responsible for the persecution of the church. Back then, in his kind of group of friends, like, he was the zealous one. He was the one who was protecting the, the people of God. He was going to do away with the church. He was devotionally superior. And finally, he said, morally. Morally, I'm more superior than anyone else. He says, when it comes to the law, I'm blameless. Now, it's not that he believed he, he didn't kind of keep, uh, he didn't break any of the laws. He knows that he did. But he said, more than anyone else that I knew, I was blameless. More than anyone else, I kept 
God's law. I was the one who, who always stopped at the red light. I was the one who never went over 30. I'm the one who always and only ever listens to Christian music and, and never watches those programs on Netflix. That was me. I was blameless. Like if Paul had a CV when it comes to, to righteousness, it would be gold. Look at verse 7. But. I've got all these things. I'm a a picture of righteousness. I'm superior in so many ways. But. You know that word but is one of the most powerful words in this book. It's a word of transition. But, he says. Despite all I had. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All that I had, all that made me the poster boy for righteousness, I count it as loss. Why? And that word loss, folks, you translate it back like, Actual translation, I'm not allowed to say because there's kids in the room. Think, think rubbish. Think kind of garbage. Think about stuff that you avoid when you're walking on the pavement all too often. Like we love you dog people, but only if you pick it up after, after it's done its business on the path. Think of that. That's what Paul's talking about. All of that glorious CV, I count as rubbish. Like Paul's, Paul's friends, like the people he knocked around with, the, the Judaizers would look and listen and, and hear Paul and say, are you mad? Are you crazy? You're well educated. You're, you're right in the right kind of family line. You've, you've got everything going for you. And you count it all as rubbish. See, it only makes sense when we see what Paul is comparing it to. Paul's talking in like accountancy language. Stick with me. I know this is boring for some of you, but he's talking about profits and losses. Did you see kind of he repeats gain and loss a few times in those few verses? And he's talking like an accountant would talk. So if you're an accountant and maybe some of us do this with our budgets, Elizabeth does this with ours and she's phenomenal at doing it. You have a profit and a, and a loss. Well, we don't just do this for our finances, I must say, because we don't make a profit. But imagine you did, you have a profit and a loss column. And everything that you gain, all of the, the stuff that you make money on goes in the profit column. And then you have a loss column, the, the kind of things that you're having to write off or expenditure and things like that. And he's saying, he's saying at one stage in my life, everything in the profit column, it was just, it was overwhelmingly superior to everyone else. Like I had everything going for me. And all of my accomplishments, I saw them in this profit column. And on the other side, he says... He says, now, I see all those accomplishments, but there's another side. What I see over here is Jesus. And at one point, I counted Jesus as lost. But now my eyes have been opened. Columns have flipped. And what I once saw as gain is now in the loss column. And what I once saw as loss is now in the gain column. He says, now that I know Christ, all of that. All of my accomplishments, they're a loss to me. And Jesus, only Jesus, stands in the other column. And he is my prophet. See, what he once thought is a prophet, all of his accomplishments, 
what he once thought as gain. It's not even that he just sees them as rubbish. When he says lot, he's saying he sees them as a liability. All of the good things he's done in his life, all of the worldly accomplishments that he has, the good job, the family, all of that, he sees it as a liability. Why? Because it stands in the way of truly knowing Christ. It stands in the way of truly knowing Jesus. It's a distraction for him from from having true peace and true joy and real safety which only comes in and through the Father. See, in the world that we live in, it matters what we've done. It matters who we are. It matters what accomplishments we have. It matters what we see in that gain column. But with the gospel, none of that matters. What really matters is what Jesus has done. See, if you think about what a CV is, like some of us have had to write CVs quite, quite recently or write personal statements, and it's really uncomfortable, isn't it, having to like, big yourself up and write all these good things about yourself. But, but if you think of what a CV is fundamentally, it's a document that, that you want to use to gain access into somewhere. Like you see a job, right, and you want that job. And so you hand your CV in with a, a hope that you can gain access into this new career or this new venture, whatever it is. And on your CV, you need to say, or you're not going to get a job, you need to say, I'm good enough to do that job. I meet the standards required to do that job. Look at what I've done. Look at all of my experience. Look at all of my acumen. It fits that job. Paul is saying when it comes to righteousness, he lists everything out that he has. There is no one better better than him. And he says, I'm nowhere near. I am nowhere near getting into where I need to be. If the goal is safety, if the goal is security and joy that comes with all of that, I am nowhere near. My list of experience and acumen is not good enough. That is why he says, if you look down at verse 8, that he wants to gain Christ. He wants to be found in him. Paul's righteousness is not good enough on his own to find a place of security and safety. He knows that he needs to gain Christ. He knows that he needs to be found in Christ because here's what happens. When we're saved, our our feeble attempts of righteousness are no good. And so God clothes us in his righteousness. He gives us the righteousness of, of his son. It's as if Jesus takes our CV, puts it to one side and gives us his CV instead. And allows us to present that to the Father. And and we say it's not our works, it's His works. And God says, yes, that is enough. Welcome it. It's the righteousness of Christ that brings us into the presence of God. There is no amount of good works. There is no amount of righteousness that we can muster up. It will be good enough to make us right with God. So Paul sees Jesus as infinitely more valuable than anything that he has and anything that he does. He counts everything else as lost for the sake of knowing him. And that to Paul's contemporaries, that to people in Paul's culture is foolish. They would look at his CV and say, you've got everything going for you. And you're going to count that as lost for knowing Jesus? That's just foolish. But when we know what we know when we get Christ, 
we can see why it's not. See, when we know Christ, and when we know Christ Jesus specifically as our Lord, this is what we know. That God loves us. Even on our most sinful days. When we, when we know Christ, we know that God loves us. When we know Christ, we know that he has shown us how much he loves us. That he has come, that he has left the Father and come and lived amongst us and died for us on a cross for our sin. And we know Christ, we know that even though we, we know that we're more deserving of judgment than we might care to admit, we have not received a drop of it. All of it has fallen onto Jesus. When we know Christ, we know that God delights in us. He's not angry with us. He's not unhappy with us. He's not embarrassed about us. He delights in us no matter what we have done. When we know Christ, we know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. When we know Christ, we know that we are loved. Loved right now by God and loved into all of eternity. When we know Christ, we know that there is nothing in this world that will ultimately give us the safety and the security and the joy that comes with it. That we deeply desire. Folks we are saved by nothing. More than grace. Through Jesus finished work. Of the cross. Verse 9. Explains this to us more. Paul says that he is found in him. Found in Jesus. Not having a righteousness of my own. That comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Our righteousness comes from God. Did you hear that again? It's not a righteousness that Paul musters up. He says a righteousness, not of my own, but one, one that comes through faith in Christ. Paul's works do not matter. Our works do not matter. What really matters if we want right standing before God is whether we are found in Christ and whether we have received his righteousness. And Paul says that comes, like even that isn't something we can wear for. He says it comes as a gift by faith. So first, before we go any further, we need to know that. If we are not standing right before God now, if we are just presenting our works and our efforts and our experience and giving God our CV this morning, it's not good enough. You need the righteousness of God. Paul says it is yours. It can come to you as a free gift from God. By faith. Maybe some of us need to ask for it this morning. Maybe some of us need to ask for that faith from God this morning. Faith to believe that Jesus is Lord. And that we need his righteousness in order to stand before God. Now it's right that our works don't matter in terms of our salvation, but, but our works do matter in some sense. That's why Paul gives us verse 10 and 11. He kind of talks about what it is to live the Christian life. He says in verse 10 that the Christian life is becoming more like him, becoming more like Jesus. Well, that's the word sanctification that sometimes we, we use. And that really is what Paul's letters, letter is about. Growing in our likeness to Jesus, becoming more like Jesus. That's Paul's goal for the Philippians. That we would become more like him. So it's not like we're saved. It's not like we're, we're made right before God. We're clothed in his righteousness. We receive that by faith and then that's it. We just sit and wait. And like, 
Like that is just a holding pattern until we die. Paul says there is a life to live now. And the life we live is a life that is becoming more like Jesus. Every day. How do we do that? In verse 10. You see this deep desire within Paul that he wants to know Jesus. Paul's had a taste of who Jesus is. And he wants to know more. That is Paul's life aim, to know Jesus more and more. He says, I want to know him. I want to experience him. I want to experience the power of the resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I want to experience that more and more. I want to know him. I want to experience him. And I also want to, I want to live like him. He says, I want to share in his suffering. That word share there, remember back in our first week, that that Greek word, that funny word koinonia, this word of participation. It's a a kind of relationship which we enter into in order to participate in something. That's the word that Paul's using here. I want to share in the sufferings of Jesus. What he's saying is this, I want to enter into the narrative of Jesus. I want to enter into the narrative of Jesus, which is a story of humility, a story of denial, a story of loss, and ultimately for Jesus, a story of death. For the good of those around him. Paul says, I want to enter into that. I want to be brought into the story of Jesus. And you see, again, just how countercultural this is. Paul, the poster boy of righteousness, now saying that he's willing to just counter all this rubbish and even die for God. Those around him would say, Paul, you're a fool. Paul, that is reckless. Paul, that is a bad economic to count all of that as loss just so that you can follow God and suffer along the way. That just doesn't make sense. Remember for Paul, knowing Jesus as Lord is the safest place to be now and for all eternity. He finds his security in Christ. He finds his confidence in Christ. That is where he wants to be. Knowing Jesus all the more. And even though he talks about entering into the sufferings, he knows that is not the end of the story. The last verse, he's looking forward to a future resurrection. And that's just a a teaser, a bit of a trailer for next week. So we're not going to go there. I do want to just end with asking us this. How do you know this morning, folks, if you are safe? How do you know if you are secure? And please, I don't mean in physical terms. I don't mean in financial terms or even in terms of health. How do you know if you are eternally secure? Well, do you know Jesus? He is the source of eternal security. If you do not know him, then on the day when you have to present your CV, your righteousness before God, it will not be good enough. You will fall short, far short, of the goal which is perfection. God in his mercy has made a way. And it is by faith that you can have the righteousness of Christ. So that you can be presented before God, clothed in Christ, and welcomed in for all eternity in the place of safety, in the place of security. What if you're a Christian this morning? How do you know if you're saved? Well, glance back at verse 3. 
Paul says this is what it looks like to live the Christian life. In contrast to the dogs, he says, we are the circumcision. who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That is the life of someone who knows God. And that life is not marked by confidence in themselves. It's not marked by confidence in things that they have done and things that they have accomplished. It is marked by confidence in the work of God. And it is a life that is marked by worship. He says we glory in Christ Jesus. By the Spirit of God we worship. Christian life is marked by people who know Jesus. And the more we know Jesus, the more we love him. And the more we love him, the more we will glorify him. And the more we want to glorify him, the more it will be obvious who we love. We will want to worship how we know if we that's how we know if we know Jesus is our life marked by a life of worship of God is our life marked of a life of glorifying God and if that is a struggle for you this morning folks can I suggest you need to know him more you need to know Jesus more yes we have the righteousness of God and we have eternal security but remember that isn't just our boredom past to eternity It affects our present. I encourage us to drive deeper into knowing Jesus this week. And I know that we live in a busy world with lots of distractions. And we are often driven to anxiety and worry and insecurity. So like Paul, folks, make it your life's aim to know Jesus more. Know Jesus who is the entrance to the place of security. And that is not a chore. And we know Jesus, we know love. We know Jesus, we know not just one who loves, but the one who is loved. So practically, to know Jesus, we need to know his word. It's usually around this time of the year, if you kind of started off with a good habit of reading the Bible at the start of the year, and you start to wane off a little bit, can I just encourage you again, give you a little boost, get back into his word. This is where we, where we know Jesus, this is where we learn about Jesus. Pick up that discipline again of understanding who he is and growing in your knowledge of who he is so that your heart is stirred towards worship. If you find that hard, put some worship music on. Let someone else do the hard work for you. Let them kind of read scripture and sing scripture for you. And you just listen along and enjoy. Prioritize the community of God's people. Come along to gospel community. Come along on a Sunday morning. Be with God's people. Each of these things will help us know Jesus more. It's something that I've just got into the habit of doing. It's something that a friend of mine put me onto just at the start of the year. Just for the first five minutes of the day. Usually before the kids are awake. For five minutes. Maybe just grab some coffee. And I'll just be quiet for a few minutes. And not even with my Bible at just sit in the quiet and this is what I'll say God loves you Neil God delights in you God is pleased with you you are his son he loves to hear from you he wants to help you today He's given you his spirit. He's waiting to welcome you in for all eternity. 
Apple loves you. Do you know what I find that's so helpful just to remind myself? Simple truths of the gospel. Simple things that I know about God. That make me want to know him more. And I remind myself that I'm loved by God. It's not like I think, oh well, that's great, I don't want to know him anymore. The more I know that God loves me, the more I want to know him more. So maybe you just try that this week. Just for a couple of minutes as you wake up this morning. Just remind yourself the truths of the gospel. These same things. Rejoice in those like Paul encourages the church in Philippians to do. And make it your life's aim to know Jesus. To receive his righteousness by faith. And then to every day grow in your knowledge and love of him. For his glory. For your glory.